This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million See, this song doesn't do it justice. The Bare Naked Ladies are going to have to reform once again and do a charity concert in Hamilton with the song, If I Had a Billion Dollars. What if I had a billion dollars? A million dollars? That's like Dr. Evil. That's not even a million dollars. Who cares? That's nothing. That's chump change with what we're talking about now. A billion dollars is what is all the talk these days because Doug Ford, who, you know who Doug Ford is, I assume, running for premier of this province, the conservative leader, has said that if, in fact, he becomes premier and if, in fact, Hamilton City Council decides that it would like the billion dollars that has been promised by the win Liberal government for LRT, if it would, if its city council, if our city council would like to reconsider and simply take a billion dollars to put towards other infrastructure projects, that's fine. There you go. You can choose what you want to do with it. It's yours. You decide where it wants, where you want it to go. Well, Andrew Dreschel wrote a piece today in the paper. Fascinating piece. If Hamilton had a billion dollars, it's almost like the name of the song. And it has spurred a great deal of discussion, some of it angry, some of it irate, some of it agreeing. Could we put a billion dollars, should we discuss putting a billion dollars into something else? Or should we say, no, the LRT is locked in, it is ready to go, that money stays where it is. Well, one of the city councillors who has been around the table for this entire discussion over the last couple terms of council, and uh, unless I'm mistaken, one of the most uh, solid and ardent and continuous supporters of the LRT project is Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, who joins me now. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Yeah, you're talking to the uh, co-chair of the LRT subcommittee, Scott, so I am one of the five. And, uh, you know, and I, whether we agree or disagree on these things, I respect people who take a position and have a strong position on it. So I I respect you taking the position on it and I know where you stand on this thing, but I wanted to have you on to ask about this piece today and about this concept because Andrew raises the point if now I think we can all, and I think you would say the same thing. We don't know if this money We don't know if Doug Ford would do this or not. He has said he would, but if, and we're playing the if game a little bit here, but if we believe that a billion dollars really could be ours for anything, is it worth reopening the discussion? Because we have a lot of needs in this city. If we believe Doug Ford, should we be reconsidering this? I would say the operative word you've used is if, and I think I agree with you. Yeah, the debate is already, as you noted, off the top, intriguing. It's interesting. A lot of uh, commentary from Andrew today, but others, even councillors who have said things like "this is a game changer." Who's one of the five? I might add, others who had reluctantly supported LRT uh, most recently last May have said, well, that really does uh, put a fly in the ointment in terms of where my head is at. In fact, if you did the math, there'd be a majority of councillors this term, if we had a billion dollars, who would probably go a different direction. Uh, that said, we do not have a billion dollars. And I think it, this this debate is only truly fruitful if the money's in the Hamilton Bank. And that really, truly is where I stand on the issue right now, because otherwise we're just spending a great deal of time on an imaginary figure that was thrown out there five days after uh, the same candidate said, I support LRT. And in fact, the figure wasn't a billion, Scott. It was $1.3 billion. I don't mm. even know where that came from. But that's $300 million more. And... Um, that's something where the, the debate, in my humble opinion, is meaningful only when the money is there for us. Otherwise, um, it's just, once again, the province uh, putting in our lap a whole lot of uh, discussion and a whole lot of debate um, on, on an imaginary figure. And, and, and the reality is, um, you know, we're $100 million in, and it's not like we're just debating LRT for the first time. We are years and a hundred million dollars in on this project. So it, it would be it would it would be no surprise to me if the billion dollars was in the bank that we would probably see a majority of council decide to spend a great deal of time deciding on how to reallocate rather than spend it on 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 the beeline LRT project. And and part of that debate obviously would be how do we legally we're bound legally to pay back the hundred million how do we do that? Do we take it away from the 1.3 billion promised on the 
on the campaign trail by Doug Ford. I, there's all sorts of issues if the money's imaginary at this point, in my opinion. And we don't know yet, uh, because there's a provincial election, then a municipal election. Sure. We don't know yet who is going to win. We don't know how much of a, uh, issue this is going to be, because if, if Doug Ford does win, I think it's going to become much more of an issue municipally, uh, than if he loses or if he only gets a minority. But I wonder, uh, and we've got to go to break in a second, so you're going to have to keep this one short, but it, what percent, how many counselors do you think, if there really was a billion dollars, and again, I will stress if like you do, if there was a billion dollars, how many counselors do you think would ardently say it has to be LRT, and how many do you think would say, we got to have a chat? I'd say 10 would say we have to have a chat, at least six. Hmm. Which Probably would... trying to... Um save what is a year's worth of work and it is still city building it it is hundreds of millions in infrastructure work it's not like we're not doing that some have implied otherwise uh from eastgate to uh, 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 uh mcmaster university there's a lot of infrastructure work that's part of this project so i would say i'd, I'd say 10 you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 chml i will say this uh, as we get back into this conversation to me lrt has almost become, if I could personalize LRT, it is Glenn Close in the bathtub at the end of Fatal Attraction. You think it's dead, and then all of a sudden, oh, back it comes. Back from the, it's, it's popping up out of the tub again, and it's going to stab oh. you. It's never going away, Jason. This LRT is like the stadium. It's like, this is never going away. But anyway. Uh, Just here, like the, the 80s retro you play and the 80s movies references you make on your program. It well, just isn't going away. It could be Jason. You know, from Friday the 13th. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I've never figured out, by the way, why people in those movies kept sending their kids back to that camp. I, I don't know either. You know, you've had seven know. years of kids being slaughtered by a masked, machete-wielding maniac. Let's send our kids there. That sounds like a good plan. Anyway. I like this whole Doug Ford announcement. The whole thing is surreal. It's from Friday the 13th, ladies go. Well, he, now here is the tricky part, though, for uh, for you, I think, Jason, and for, for a, a number of others as well. Your ward and most people uh, on council and around council have acknowledged this. You have a very challenging ward because you have, if it's not the ward with the most poverty and with the most challenges financially, it's got to be in the mix as one or two, but I think it's probably right at the top of the list. And so while you uh, understandably can be a strong, ardent supporter of LRT, you also have things that I don't think you would dispute that a billion dollars, if it was truly a billion dollars, could go to solve an awful lot of problems or help a lot of problems in that ward with social housing, with low rent housing, with poverty issues, with those kind of things. You mentioned if that billion dollars was in the bank, if it was in Hamilton's bank, right. would you have to revisit it knowing what the issues are in your ward? Oh, just politically, and I gave you the numbers just before the break, of course I would have to revisit it because we would be debating it for days. We would probably take three to five days of just delegations alone, uh, suggestions, in other words, from the community to our general issues committee on what we should do with the money if it were in the bank. And remember, Doug Ford had said, anything you wish, anything you like, he was nonspecific. So, Scott, that that money in the bank question, I think, is a good one if he were to win a majority. If it's a minority, it's a non-issue right. because the other two parties are obviously ardent supporters of the higher order transit, the connectivity, the economic development growth that's proven and, and very effective already in Hamilton with six, seven hundred million dollars in downtown alone uh, 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 developed by uh, proponents of the LRT. Their LRT-inspired developments closing in on a billion bucks. But the the, the the money in the bank is is the catalyst to make the debate happen, to get those delegations up there and say, yes, we do need $150 million for housing. We do need $200 million for the roads uh, in the older part of the city and another $300 million for uh, sewer infrastructure in that part of the city and another 150 here. I mean, Andrew just threw a few things against the wall in his article this this morning that inspired the, obviously this conversation and other conversations today. And don't think we haven't been talking about it for the last couple of weeks since Doug Ford made the comment. And, and I just keep going back to the fact that we're really, I don't want to say we're wasting anybody's time because it's always interesting. And, and, and he has obviously in this community offered up uh, some good barbershop fodder for a whole lot of folks morning, noon, and night whenever the barbershop's mm. open. But the reality is, when he said, on anything you like, 
There is no reason then if he gets a majority uh, government the next couple of days to put the billion three that he found, not a billion, a billion three, he said, in our bank and let us then have the debate because then it's real. The debate is 100 percent real. Well, and and you mentioned this community and, and obviously that's what we're talking about. What makes this so difficult a discussion though and again understanding your strong support for the LRT is we are a community that has and you've been through how many budgets now we have a lot of challenges we don't have a lot of money and, and there's an off community with big challenges yeah and so it, it would be I think and tell me if I'm wrong but I think it would be insane for somebody on council supporter of LRT or not if that money actually landed in the bank to say no I'm not listening to anything else those challenges can be found later it it becomes a real challenge to turn away from those and say, we, we have a chance to solve some things, but we're not going to. I'm not saying that's not what would happen, but boy, that, that would seem to force that conversation. It, it absolutely would. And I think, you know, even the co-chair who you're speaking to now of the LRT subcommittee would perk up his ears and participate in a, a very fulsome way. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously um, open to the debate if $1.3 billion is in the bank. It, it makes total sense. I mean, there, there, are, there are tremendous opportunities in the hundreds of millions of dollars to beef up transit through our block system and still leave. And I think Andrew actually alluded that with his our article today as well. Uh, yeah, he included, he included an awful lot of money for traffic. For, for transit. Or yeah. transit, sorry, transit, yes. Yes, he did. And, and, um, and so I would imagine, again, if that were uh, uh, money deposited in Hamilton's bank account, uh, that would be something that would be brokered because the reality is we've already heard, again, we've heard from one of the five in Councillor Ferguson. He says, you know, this is a game changer, and, and fair enough. I mean, he's a smart guy, and he's, he's uh, devoted to his Ancaster community, and certainly he's had his challenges trying to sell LRT in his Ancaster community, certainly not the kind of uh, LRT and embracing that we see in wards two, three, and four. That's for sure. And, and, and statistics will show you that even counselors own polls, but he's stayed an ardent supporter. But then after this announcement, Hey, that's a game changer. Tom Jackson, same thing. He's out there publicly saying, you know, if we had it for something else, he would seriously consider something else. So there's enough counselors. And when we do the math and go back to that, approximately 10 counselors who would like to go in other directions, then we have a, a pretty healthy debate, and we have to do the best that we can, uh, taking a look at 16 voters around the Hamilton Municipal Table, and ultimately uh, those who are believers in higher order transit. And, you know, I listened to your traffic report about the link in the uh, Red Hill Valley Parkway still being jammed this hour. Um, then, you know, is there some consolation? That's for the day after, and then the days after, and formal consultations with the community and general issues committee for the record consultations with the community at City Hall uh, the day after the money goes into the bank. Appreciate and, and Jason, I got to jump in. Serious, I, serious discussion. I got to jump in. I'm way over time, but listen, I okay. really appreciate the time. We will pick up this conversation again, I am sure. But Jason Farr, Counselor for Ward 2, thanks for doing this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. If you've ever had the misfortune of either needing or standing there watching as someone fell acutely ill, or I mean, even if you've watched it on TV, who we've all watched medical shows, right? And the, one of the first things that you always see the first responders or the doctors or the nurses do, without exception, I think, it's always strap oxygen onto the person and start pumping them full of oxygen. It's, the, it's just what we do. This is standard practice, I think. I'm not a doctor. I only play one on the radio. But no, this is, this is what we do. We put an oxygen mask on them and we give them liberal amounts of oxygen because, well, I'm not sure why. My next guest will probably be able to tell us. But this same next guest is author of a new study out of McMaster suggesting this may actually be doing more harm than good in some cases. It's standard, but it may not. It, maybe it shouldn't be. If he is correct, if the study is correct, this could affect tens of thousands or millions, maybe, of people uh, every year around the world. Dr. Derek Chu is a McMaster Clinical Fellow and author of this study, and there's other things in it, but we're going to start with this. Uh, Dr. Chu, thanks for doing this this evening. Thanks for having me, Scott. Um, let's go back to the beginning for this, because we've all seen this, whether it's in person, hopefully not, but in person, or even, as I say, on ER or some TV show. The, the thought behind, as soon as someone falls ill, we strap an oxygen mask onto them, even if they are still breathing. What's the thought process behind why that is what we do? 
Yeah, so standard practice has long been the thoughts about circulation, airway, and breathing, trying to uh, stabilize this acutely ill patient. And part of that has been about their airway and breathing. Let's maximize the chance that if they're low on oxygen, we give them as much as oxygen as possible. And oftentimes, if they have some underlying illness, we think, we, well, we need to maximize how much uh, oxygen they have, their physiology. And so if we give them more oxygen, it's going to maximize their chances of success and having a, a good outcome. Because there are many people, I think, and, and probably there's some medical research, a lot of medical research that would back this, that oxygen has not magical, but curative process. I mean, we have people going into pure oxygen tanks for their health. They believe that. So there's a thought process that more oxygen would heal or would allow someone to respond, I guess. Absolutely. Oxygen has gone as far back as the 1800s, where it was found patients with pneumonia would pass away unless they had oxygen to support their breathing. Unfortunately, since that time, that practice has kind of been more of a, uh, an assumption and belief and less questioned that uh, a high amount of oxygen can be useful. But more and more, we've had new medical advancements that we can treat things like pneumonia or other illnesses. We haven't taken a step back to rethink, hmm, how does oxygen fit into our toolkit? Okay, so let's go to the protocol just for a sec before we go on to your study. I, I, I suddenly have a heart attack and you, as the doctor, I go into the emergency room or the first responders show up and they put the mask on me. How much oxygen am I actually getting? Is it 100% pure oxygen that they're trying to pump into me? So it depends on precisely which situation, but often what ends up happening is um, uh, during the acute phase where, you're being, where things are trying to be sorted out, 100% oxygen at the highest possible rate that's possible is being pumped in. And then when you're in the emergency room, there may be some efforts to titrate that down, but often many times oxygen is left on for a few different reasons. Number one, some people believe it may add some comfort to the patient. Some people may believe that it might, they might be low on oxygen, the heart's not working as well, it's not pumping the oxygen around as, as well, so why not fill up the tank give as much oxygen as possible. Um, and lastly, if their oxygen level is slightly low, like say in the 95% range, well, we maybe we'll make that 100% and see if that can make things better for them. Incidentally, uh, I, I don't know if you know the answer to this. When, I am, when you or I right now are talking and breathing, what percent oxygen are we actually taking in? So we're breathing about 21% oxygen, which is quite a bit different from 100%. <laughs> it's a lot oxygen. different. Yeah, Okay, so now you start pumping 100% in your study, and we're going to get to that. It starts to find that there could be issues with this. What is the downside? There must be a downside then of 100% pure oxygen for people sometimes. Yeah, so there have been some clues here and there in the past several years saying 100% oxygen may be deleterious in certain people. Maybe it causes their lungs not to fully expand quite as well. Maybe it washes out some of the good other uh, gases in there, but there hasn't been anything really definitive until our study. Okay, and you start, first of all, when you, what made you think to, because when I think of, of all the things that I might have looked at of what may have gone wrong in an emergency room or a, a crisis situation, oxygen probably is at the, about the bottom of my list. There's a million things I'm going to think of before. What made you think to look at oxygen? It was a series of uh, small clues here and there that came about that led the suggestion that perhaps putting all these clues together might actually give us a more definitive answer than looking at anyone in isolation. And this goes into a special technique uh, statistically that uh, was pioneered initially at McMaster called meta-analysis. Okay, and so you, so did you go into this thinking that oxygen could have been a problem or was this just what popped out at the last end? Well, at this time, there was increasing information over the past kind of decade or two that too much oxygen could be a problem. And in the past about one to two years especially, there have been more and more uh, randomized control trials that said uh, that couldn't give us a conclusive answer, yes, it's harmful, or no, it's not. And so that's where we came in and thought, well, there's not a definitive answer if we look at anyone study in isolation, let's put them all together, and in aggregate, if we can pull them all together and use the, these uh, sophisticated statistics, then maybe we can get some clear guidance for a practice that's so routine and not questioned. 
And so how do you find, how do you establish in your study that it is the oxygen? Because it was something like, what was the number of number of fatalities or people died after having the, the oxygen that you get? It was like 20% or something? Yeah. So uh, what we found is that uh, by doing this meta-analysis method of randomized control trials, that is people, a number of individuals of the trial are either randomized to high amounts of oxygen or to, low, to more conservative amounts of oxygen, we found that uh, after analyzing over 16,000 patients over 25 randomized trials, that there was a 20% increase in the risk of in-hospital death, and that this translates to about uh, one extra death for every 71 patients treated with wow. a liberal oxygen strategy. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. So, doctor, I am now the son of a mom who goes into the hospital, say, and she is ill, and I see the doctors putting the oxygen mask on, should I be saying something? Should I be saying, look, do, does she really need oxygen or are you just doing this because you do it? What should, should I say anything or just go along because they're the doctors? Well, I think it depends on a lot of things. When someone's acutely ill, there's a lot of thoughts that are going on in the moment to try to save that patient's life in the immediate setting. And I think for a short amount of time, high amounts of oxygen may be allowable to try to uh, allow everyone enough time to sort out what exactly is going on. But we have to be cautious that the pendulum doesn't swing too hard the other way. On one hand, traditionally, we've been giving too much oxygen. We don't want to be going back to the opposite of giving too little oxygen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll give you carbon dioxide instead, see how yeah. that works. I mean, no, obviously, that's uh, you're, you're 100% correct, obviously. But it does make me wonder when I hear this, because it's such a, a, what's the word I'm looking for, a standard or an accepted or usual part of the whole process of being in hospital. It does make me wonder how many other things medicine does that, may not be always horribly harmful, but that are just because we do them. I mean, has that crossed your mind that if this is something that we've always been doing for decades now, what else are we doing that maybe we should rethink or relook at? Absolutely. And I think that, that again, speaks to one of the main principles that's been instilled from McMaster University, which is uh, being the promotion of evidence-based decision-making, evidence-based practice going back to long-held assumed beliefs or practices or mantras and, uh, and questioning them and thinking, what is the true evidence behind this practice? Is it the right decision to make? And if it isn't, then in who should we be doing this practice and who should we not? The same thing goes for oxygen. But Oftentimes we shouldn't be giving too much oxygen now, uh, but there will be some individuals that we need to sort out precisely who we need to give a little bit higher amounts to and who we need to give a little bit lower amounts to. But surely at some point there was a study done. Now, it may have been a rudimentary study compared to what you are doing now, but surely at some point there was a study done that led us to put oxygen masks on everybody and pump the 100% oxygen into them. It wasn't, wouldn't you think? I mean, or was this just a, you know what, it works for some, so if it's good for them, it must be good for everybody. Exactly. It, like you said before, this is kind of one of those things that's been kind of grandfathered in before that time of re-questioning previous beliefs. This practice has been uh, kind of handed down from um, the 1800s, where we first developed this auction, the ability to provide auction, then more and more advanced ways of providing auction were created, and more and more sophisticated ways of delivering that auction were created. But we haven't quite yet gone to the point of uh, until now, rethinking about, well, should we give 100% oxygen? Should we push the patients to 100% oxygen to maximize them? Is that beneficial or is that harmful? Yeah, I'm not doubting your research for a second, uh, but I do wonder because science constantly seems to be changing. And you say from the 1800s and we've done this, well, is there a chance that in 50 years, someone takes issue with your research and says, no, we, I mean, and again, that's not questioning what you're doing. I'm just wondering if, do we know ever that we've hit the exact right answer? Uh, so in, in science, there's always a, another question that, that is brought up by an answer. No, no one, uh, question that, that becomes answered on its own, uh, is definitive and the end of the story. Uh, unfortunately, there's always one next question that, that uh, begins the next step. And whether that be questioning the next assumed uh, routine practice or a, a follow-up question to, to our study. 
What's the response been to this? Because again, if you have doctors and nurses and medical people who have always done this and always assumed this was right, it gets, it becomes a force of habit and you believe that it works. So I assume there's probably some people who have said, no, this has got to be wrong. The, the oxygen thing has to work. Has there been any blowback? There's been actually an overwhelming positive response. Huh. Part, part of the problem has been many out there that were, uh, many of, of individuals that were actually skeptical about giving too much oxygen had no basis to actually make their argument. They had no strong data or strong evidence to actually say there is something as too much oxygen. But now, uh, now they're b- beginning to actually uh, take hold of this data and say, you know, we actually do need to change guidelines. We need to question our, our routine practices. Um, there have there actually haven't been any uh, much in the way of two negative responses. No, they've all been quite positive. So what happens? Let's use McMaster as the example. Mm-hmm. D- does something like this lead McMaster to make a change in their policy or their protocol? Uh, so those efforts are already underway uh, to rethink the way we uh, initiate protocols. But more importantly, beyond McMaster, we need to update our guidelines with this new information in place. And to create a guideline is a whole other process that requires bringing together all stakeholders, everyone from patients to nurses to respiratory therapists, uh, physicians, surgeons, emergency personnel. We need to bring all these people together to create new guidelines that will update uh, the existing ones and incorporate this new information that there is such a thing as too much oxygen. Dr. Derek Chu from McMaster, a clinical fellow, author of this study. You can read more about it, uh, thespec.com. Joanna Frickitich has a great piece about it today. Uh, Doctor, really appreciate the time. Thanks for taking our time. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I want to tell you this before we get to uh, sports stuff. I have never, now I'm sure you have never either. I have never before. Do you watch a lot of television? Off and on. Okay, so last night we're sitting at home, flipping around, and on Bravo, which I didn't even know we had that channel, but we do. It's a throw-in, I think. Uh, there was the second season starting of the show called The Handmaid's Tale, which is a, based on a Margaret Atwood novel, and it's a. have never seen an episode. I know about it. Well, it was a lot of it. Most of it was filmed in Hamilton last year. And so I decided, oh, you know what? I know of some of the places. I know that it was filmed in The Spectator, as it turns out, parts of it. So The Spectator doubling as the Boston Globe. So let me, uh, I'm going to record these. So I recorded. There were two episodes. I recorded them. I want to tell you something. Uh, My desk is now up for best supporting role as a desk in a major TV production. My desk made its small screen debut on Sunday night. With Elizabeth Moss, you know her probably from Mad Men or from The Handmaid's Tale. Um, yes, my, my desk is now more famous than I am, Don. I, you clearly watch more TV than I do. Well, I, 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 I don't even really know what the show is about because I've not seen it, but I recorded them and then fast-forwarded through to find all the spectator parts. And there's a whole bunch of scenes in the spectator building, including in the newsroom. And you can see it says the Boston Globe. They've put the Boston Globe up on the wall and tried to make it look like it's the Boston Globe, and um, but there's there's my desk, a shining beacon of proof that if you set your mind to something, you can do anything. My desk will now be seen, next be seen on TMZ, being chased by the paparazzi in a drunken rage, getting in a fight with someone, I'm sure, now that its ego has gone through the roof. Well, I, I'm betting it won't be a drunken rage, and I'll betting, I'm betting there's no alcohol in your drawers. <laughs> well, uh, Unlike 30 <laughs> or 40 years ago when most... Oh, you mean of my desk? Yes. <laughs> I'm not interested in your other drawers. But here is like the, many, I'm sure. Here, here is the other part about this. <laughs> uh, my desk got the um, probably the best view in the newsroom of the uh, the boom chicka wow wow scene. <laughs> Elizabeth Moss and uh, someone else were getting sweaty in the newsroom, which. To the best of my knowledge, this is the first ever incident of gratuitous nudity and lovemaking in the Hamilton Spectator newsroom. There may have been, but I've never heard of any in any other circumstance. But right beside my desk, on the floor, there is, it's like, wow, they, 
I don't know what they do at the Boston Globe, but as a rule, we don't do this at the Hamilton Spectator. So as a rule. As a rule. So you haven't categorically said it didn't happen. You're just not aware of it. Oh, no, I'm not tells, aware of it. Which tells me a couple things. Either people at the spec can keep a secret and they don't Or tell. it was way before my time when they did have we are liquor in the drawers. Liquor in the drawers, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and ashtrays on the desks, yes. I'm sure. Anyway, so for the, for the record, anyone who happens to watch that, that show and sees the two of them getting at it in the newsroom. Doing a horizontal mambo. Uh, not typically newsroom behavior. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a rule, in case anyone thinks, hey, you know, those media people have it really good. Go to work, write a story, make a little love, <laughs> do a little dance, get down tonight. No, we don't do that. Are you, <laughs> you're, you're doing this in case your wife is listening, going, no, I'm, for sure this doesn't happen at work, and I'm going to tell everybody it doesn't happen I at just, work. I thought it was just so funny that, um, that uh, you know, what Hollywood... Uh, their view of what happens, I guess, in the, in the media world. Well, in the Boston Globe, it may happen. Maybe. Maybe it did. Maybe that's why they couldn't use that newsroom. It was being fumigated? It was a mess. <laughs> Let us, uh, you know, speaking of things that, uh, that I, I don't really expect to happen all that often, uh, there's a story. Well, tonight, game has just started. Uh, the Kitchener Rangers and the Sioux Greyhounds, Sioux St. Marie Greyhounds, are playing Game 7 of their OHL semifinal. The winner of this game will play against the Hamilton Bulldogs in the OHL final. The winner of that goes to the Memorial Cup. Now, this is all a big mess right now because depending on who wins this will depend on what the schedule is. Hamilton doesn't know where. There's all kinds of things going on. So this is a huge game, Kitchener and Sioux St. Marie. Last night in Kitchener, Kitchener wins in overtime to keep their season alive and to force Game 7. And as soon as they score, one of the guys who was on the ice for the Kitchener Rangers, in the celebration, skates over to the Sault Ste. Marie bench and skates along the bench, facing all the players, giving them the finger, flipping them the bird as he skates by as part of his celebration. Well, the OHL suspended him for two games today. My question is, should flipping a bird in a celebration be a suspendable offense in hockey? Yes. No question. It's, uh, it's, it's what you call a gross misconduct. It's, uh, it's making a travesty of the game. Even after the game is over? Even in the hallway. Well, I mean, the game's over. It doesn't mean you can meet the referee in the hallway and punch him in the nose. Some have tried. And they get suspended. Yeah. Right? I mean, if a coach goes cuckoo at the coach... Or at the referee in the hallway, ask Jim Schoenfeld, have another donut, you fat pig. Yeah, to Don Koharski? In a NHL playoff game, was off the ice, game was over. And um, so you can't. You have to be responsible for your actions, uh, presumably, till you get on the bus and head out of town. It's. I tend to agree. Well, you should, I'm right. I, no, I tend to agree with you on this one, but I'm wondering, does it change it if it's a playoff game, that emotions are high, that it's game six, that you've survived, that you get to play another game, that you're maybe not as calm, cool, and collected as you might be in a game well, 36 of the regular the season? Called? Did you look at the score sheet? Do you know what the I don't know if there was a penalty that was called on it. I just know that okay. the film was sent into the league or the league mm-hmm. saw it on TV and said, no, that's not good, We're uh, you're suspended for two Branch games. may have been at the game. Could have been. Could have been. Um, well, he would have. Somebody would have had to be in the game because they may have presented a trophy. Uh, okay. Right. Well, it, it may not. It wasn't like the it, Bulldogs won the Bob York trophy. Yeah, I but mean, David Branch didn't present that, so it could have been someone else. Someone from the league was there. There's no question that somebody from the league was there. So you didn't escape it. It wasn't an exhibition game in the Cambridge on a pad. on a grainy yeah. b- bad. I mean, you've got good TV, high definition TV of the thing. You've got people there, yeah. and you got everybody watching the celebration and. Like, I I agree, you can't be a, an idiot, and you can't make a mockery of the game. And that's where the two-game suspension comes. Now, uh, to answer your question, it doesn't matter if it's the playoffs. I think it does, and I think perhaps if it was in November, it might have been a four- or five-game suspension. W- would it be, what category, what, I mean, this obviously is very visual. When you flip someone the bird, it's a very visual thing. If he had yelled something at them, 
Would it have been different? Would it have been, would he have gotten away with it? Do you think? I mean, you don't know, you're not in the room, but I mean, if, if you had just skated down the bench and yelled a, an F-bomb at them or something, w- would that have just been considered part of the game? Sadly, F-bombs are part of the game. Uh, you can't do anything racial or homophobic or anything else. It all depends on if one of the officials was in within earshot. You know, I mean, if he skated by and give it the FU because Lord knows what was said to him the shift before, and the linesman looked at it and said, referees, come on, guys, that's enough. It's, it's overtime. And he went by and got even. Well, you know, uh, tit for tat kind of thing. But that kind of a display has to be dealt with. If it had not been picked up on television, what do you think in these circumstances would it have led to a suspension? If it had just been that the bench had said, oh, he did that, he flipped us a bird and we can't find any evidence of it, but the bench all says they did it. Or is it because publicly yeah. the le- this has been pumped out to the world and to, or whoever's watching and so the league has to do something? I know some of the guys I worked with when I was doing, uh, when I was a linesman in the OHL uh, certainly would have purposely not have seen it. They just started doing up their skates going, I'm not getting into this one. But things have changed. And when it's broadcast, and you're right, the television can be your friend in a disputed goal, but it can be your enemy when players act up. I'm sure uh, Jay McKee is not a happy guy. And he, Jay McKee being the head coach of Kings, of uh, Kitchener Rangers and also a former player of yours, former with the Dundas Real McCoys, won the Allen Cup. He was Jay McKee was a de facto coach when we won the Allen Cup. We let him, uh, head coach Ken Mann, brought him in. We, we knew what we were dealing with and said, look, there's, we're in the coach's room. There's no egos here. We just want to win. And we talked about it before. We think you can help us. And system-wise and everything else, he was absolutely brilliant and, and had tremendous respect along with Ryan Christie and Nick Smith and so many more, but had tremendous respect. He played, you know, over 700 games in the National Hockey League, and he was uh, he was a big part of it. So he knows, and I, I, I've i said before, you got to have guys that, that play and live on the edge to have success, and you hope they don't do anything a little bit stupid, and sometimes guys do things they shouldn't do and they regret it, and now they're going to pay the price for it tonight. So And so if you're a head coach and you have a guy get suspended for something like this, are you outraged at the league for suspending him, or are you outraged at your own player for being a moron who gets himself caught doing something like this? Player, you, you of course, you're publicly going to say it's the league, right? You're not going, or are you going to call out it. your own player? I don't think you can defend the player in this circumstance. You just got to eat it and say, "Look at it. It was a, it was a lapse in judgment, and um, there's no place for that in the game, and we're all going to learn something from this." And if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go in the dressing room and throttle that little SOB. <laughs> well, they might not say the last part, but you know, that's exactly what they're thinking. We had a situation the player will go unnamed for us in the Allen Cup in in uh, Clarenville, and a guy chirped one of our guys, and he took a swat at him with his stick from the bench and got a one game suspension. Now everybody in the building saw it. So how can I get mad at the referees? Because that's really not what you want going on. This guy plays on the edge. He's a tremendous player. Well, and Jay McKee, who is the captain, as I say, he, it, coach, coach. Pardon me. He, um, anyone who remembers watching, he played for the with the Buffalo Sabers for a long time. Signed as a free agent with the St. Louis Blues. The thing that he did, he he blocked more shots. And Led the took, league several years. Yeah, just it took a pounding, and there is a certain sacrifice involved in that. I can't believe that a guy who earned his money that way is going to be thrilled with the guy who decided to celebrate. Here's the thing about it. He's, they just won the yeah. game. It's not like they lost the game and he's furious. He won the game and he celebrates by skating by the bench and flipping the bird. I can't imagine that a coach would ever be, let alone Jay McKee, a guy, as I say, who who earned his money and earned his paying wins a price. by paying a big price and absorbing punishment that he's going to be happy with a guy who decided he had to do that. That, that to me, is... Well, I sent Jay a message this morning, I, I'm unaware of this, but um, I think I know him well enough to know that he is not happy. I would guess. I would guess. It, it, you're going to have to sit around and have a couple glasses of tea with him to get what he really thinks out of him, but it, it won't be... Well, especially if they lose tonight. 
if they lose tonight and and one of your best players is sitting out just because you acted like a goofball unnecessarily too yeah. here's the thing like the, well you know they're standing on the bench watching them going where's he going and then you're going holy crap i hope nobody's looking at this and knowing <laughs> everybody in the building's looking at it right it is uh how much i mean I, I know you're I know you're tight with Jay, but I mean, how much of that falls on coaching that you that uh, one of your players in that moment did something like that? Does it fall on the coaching at no, all? Oh, it's a brain cramp. I, I don't think you can take that to the coaching level. Um, who was it, Dale Hunter, that went after uh, Pierre Turgeon? Pierre Turgeon. I mean, I don't remember anybody blaming the coach for that. I mean, it was it was he paid a huge price for that. Twenty one games, but nobody brought the coach in. Like, nobody was saying, how could the coach let him do that? I mean, it's one of those things that just happens, whether it's a guy flips a guy an elbow coming through the middle, drops his shoulder into his head. It's just it's, the game is so fast. That, though, is not a reaction play. Some thought had to go into, I'm going to go to the Sault Ste. Marie bench and flip them all the bird. You know? And oh, so, and here was, the, here, here was the thing. Josh Brown, who writes for the Waterloo Record, is a great writer. Uh, he's been on this show before. He followed up today after the announcement was made of the suspension and says, two games for, like, he was not a fan of the call. And he said, what happened if the entire Kitchener team had flipped the bird? It's a good question. I don't, I'm, I, I can't remember ever an entire team flipping another team the bird. I don't know if it's ever, I don't know if there's precedent for this, but. Well, I can tell you what would happen. They'd all be suspended, no, I guess. They, no, they'd suspend Jay McKee. You think, they, yeah, they can't suspend the whole team. No, but they, somebody's got to go. And then they could say, you didn't have control over your entire team, and you are now facing this punishment for not having control over your entire team. They'll cut them some slack for one guy. They're not cutting them some slack for 20. Yeah. It is, uh, it is an interesting one that will um, that potentially could have a huge impact. It, it's so it, To me, it's so interesting that you have the – because that, that player who is suspended had been – arguably Kitchener's best player for a few games and, and a real difference maker and, and a real reason they were still in the series. We'll see if they can... Uh, Let's see if they rally around it, though. Could be. Could be. Right? you got to figure out how to get something good out of it and say, you know what? the league, You know, it's us against the world now. The league's trying to stop us and, you know, that you just rally the troops and... It is... Uh, you don't see it. I, I don't know how, and we got to go to break. I don't know how you don't see it more. You don't see this kind of stuff. You hear guys get suspended occasionally for a inappropriate language, N- not an F-bomb, as you say, but for other things that are homophobic or racial. Not often, though. And and I can't recall, I mean, I, I suppose Brad Marchand licking a maple leaf is unusual. Well, if, you're, if you're not putting it in a scrapbook, it is. I, I, I'd love to know what would happen in the OHL. The OHL tends to, not tends, the OHL is much more severe with its discipline than the NHL is, much more severe. They lead, they lead the world in setting the benchmark for discipline I'd, for inappropriate acts. I would be very interested to see if someone licked another player what the suspension for that would be. I don't think it would be what the NHL gave, which was nothing but an email saying, please stop him from licking other people. <laughs> Which, which I'm pretty sure the NHL never thought that email would have to ever be written. I don't Could you it. please ask your player to cease and desist from licking opponents? <laughs> You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Don, we are going to revisit some old turf here for a moment because some time ago you and I chatted and I don't know if it was you, I don't know if it was me, it could have been either, it could have been both, who made the point that the NHL's instant replay system is going to bite them at some point. It's going, and I still believe, whether it's this year, whether it's next, there's going to be something that happens in the Stanley Cup Finals that will ruin the Finals, could cost the team the Stanley Cup. This weekend, we have two. We have a goal that looks pretty obviously and clearly scored by the Pittsburgh Penguins, that when you look at the goalie's pad, the puck, it's a wraparound and it goes under the goalie's pad and the goalie's pad disappears way behind the line, but because you can't see the puck under the pad, even though all logic says, well, it's got to be there, no goal, and Pittsburgh ends up losing. And a second one 
where a guy comes from behind the net, and even though he's not in the blue ice, he's outside the goalie's goal crease, uh, he nudges the goal, the butt of the goalie's stick, and they call no goal on that one, and that cost Vegas an, a goal in overtime that would have won them the game. When is the NHL, or is the NHL ever going to fix this, or are they just going to stumble their way towards a catastrophe when they get to the finals and some team is going to lose a Stanley Cup because of this? Well, they've, they've, dug, put them, they've painted themselves into a corner, for one thing. And I always hearken back to Brett Hull's skate yep. in the crease. And... Uh, Kenny Hitchcock sending everybody over the boards and making it too late to drag it back. I mean, remember when you couldn't have anything in the crease and his foot was in the crease? They counted the goal. It cost Buffalo. Buffalo have never requi- recovered. No, and they I don't think down. Buffalo have won a playoff game since then. I Probably don't know. not. It's been and they, a long well, time. and they haven't. They haven't. Um, so they screwed that up. Yeah, no, they absolutely screwed that one. That was the gold standard of non-replay, replay, overruling, non-overruling decisions. So they said we better get rid of that, and then clearly adapted amnesia and forgot it happened because obviously Gary Bettman isn't listening to this show every Monday night like he should be. But if they had been, they wouldn't have adopted the new rule. And it is going to come back and bite them. The problem with everybody in the world knowing that that puck had to be over the line, the way the rule's written, you have to see it over the line. And if you don't see it over the line, you can't count it. Okay, and so I go back to the idea of you've put an instant replay rule in that has not clarified things. It's complicated things. And that seems to be the case. This is the issue that the NHL has with every rule that it puts in, For seemingly. It always seems to complicate rather than clarify. Always. Find me the one rule the NHL has put in that has clearly clarified something rather than make it just way more cumbersome. I can't think of one. Well, shooting a puck over the glass is pretty cut and dried. Although Most of the time, although the Leafs got a power play on one yeah, that looks not, like it shouldn't have it's, been. It's not perfect. Because that you can't review, See, apparently. on the goal you're talking about, the referees said no goal. Right. So it has to be com- conclusively different from what the ref said. Correct. And it wasn't. Now, the call on the ice might have been wrong. And and here's what we always no, get back to. But right, though? Yeah, no, no. The call on the ice may have been wrong, but here's what we always get back to. If the call on the ice is wrong and you don't have the rule in place that can properly fix it, just why are we – just let the refs call the game. Let the refs call the game. You know what? They get criticized at times, but they're pretty darn good. They're pretty darn good. They're, they're, they're the best in the world. And you say the same about the NBA refs. You say the same about Major League Baseball. When they've now got Major League Baseball – review and stuff, you find out that it's like 98% the refs, the umpires get right. It's not like we're talking where it's a 50-50 guess. It's 98%. I'll live with the 2%. But you now had a game in Vegas, and I don't care that it was in Vegas, I mean, it, where you won the game in overtime, and you all had to stand around and wait to see what was going to be ruled. And this was a, this was a, subjective decision. This was not a puck over the line objective ruling. This was a subjective decision that you're waiting on that goes against a team and then you have to keep going back at it and they end up losing and there was no reason. There was no reason. And I know that some people will say, well, Kelly Rudy on Hockey Night in Canada said that that was goalie interference. Kelly Rudy's a goalie. Kelly Rudy, who I respect and I think he's a really good commentator, but he's a goalie. He would say it's goalie interference if you breathed on the guy as you went by the net. He's going to always stand up for the goalies. Yeah. It Let the refs just call the games uh, and maybe have it if the puck crosses the line, although I hate that too, but the, the, the Pittsburgh one. But uh, I don't have any trouble with, with no instant replay. You've been a ref. You've been an official. Yep. And yeah, you know what? You made some mistakes. I was right half the time. Yeah, probably a little more than that. But the NHL guys are, you have a feel for the game. You, The ones I think they should look at is when the referee asks for it to be looked at. Like, I think you should leave it up to the referees. I don't think it should be automatic. I think if the referee is unsure, he needs to be able to go and talk to us. In the old days, when it was, first of all, 
back in the old days when there was only one referee and there was no video anywhere, I mean, anywhere, um, all the referee had was the linesman to go to. And you tried to sort it out. And if, you, and if you're on the and ice. And a goal judge. And a goal judge, which you relied on. Even though he was likely wearing the home team's jacket, you had to rely on him and then how much to rely on him. But you always go to the linesman. And, but I think in today's technology, if you're not sure, if you got blocked out, if you're on the goal line where you're supposed to be, and which is why the two-man system's better because the, the guy in the goal line is supposed to concentrate if the puck goes in the net, not if somebody gets his head knocked off. But if, if Chara swings through like a 747 and now you can't see anybody but his number and you're blocked out, I think they should have the right to go to see what they missed. But it's all automatic now. But you're talking about something that is objective, that is an objective ruling. Did the puck cross the goal line or not? Yep. And that would be the one from the Pittsburgh-Washington game that was still common sense says they got it wrong, but the rule by the letter of the law, they got it right. According to That was an objective ruling. Was the puck over the line? The other one is entirely subjective. And when you now slow it down and look at it from seven different angles, you can make, it's like accountants with m- figures. You can make anything look like what you want it to if you put it in the right angle with the slow enough screen. And, and, and so when you watch it live, it looked fine. The refs let it go because it looked fine. It was a guy who skated near the net, but not in the crease, and he bumped the goalies. How many times has a goalie in the history of hockey had the butt of his stick bumped by a player? And we never thought that was a problem before. And now suddenly... See, now we've come to this point where goalies, if they, literally, if you skate by the net and you, if your equipment smells badly or you flatulate or you burp, apparently this could throw off a goalie and we have to have an instant replay to determine if they were able to get set properly. Like, we want, hockey is trying to find goals and we're looking to find every conceivable way to make sure that goals don't count. Or that they do. No, because all 99% of replay situations are used to eliminate a goal, not to create a goal. Offside never has created a goal. It's eliminated goals. Yes. Goalie interference has never created a goal. It's eliminated goals. All the replays, except for the one, the objective did it cross line, every other one is used to eliminate well, a goal. Not, I'm not sure they all eliminate goals. I mean... If the referee calls goaltender interference and it's reviewed and it's determined that it wasn't goaltender interference, the goal would stand. Yeah, but that was not eliminating a goal, but that's not creating a goal. It's just no, it doesn't. Create. It's just still standing by a goal. It flatuate. Does that mean fart? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. If you skate by and fart near the goalie, he could probably say that it was interrupting my flow and my ability to concentrate, and therefore and, we should have a review. And I'm going to tell you something. When you think accounts can get creative, I met with mine today. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Did he get creative? And I, and it didn't work the way I wanted to. And I, I went down to uh, my bank and wrote them another check for over fifteen thousand dollars to top up my income tax. So they they're not as creative as they should be. Well, maybe if you put given the fifteen thousand to the accountant, he would have been more creative. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to get the CRA mad at me. I pay them what they want, so they don't come and visit. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.